Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Electronic Intifada's live stream. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Winstanley, Ali Abunima, John Elmer, and Tamara Nassar. Today we're taking a look at the International Court of Justice's ruling that was issued just hours ago, finding that Israel is committing the crime of genocide against Palestinians. The court ordered Israel to stop committing acts of genocide. Coming up in this broadcast, we'll talk about the implications of the ruling, what it means now in terms of Israel's genocide, and what comes next. The Palestinian Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions National Committee stated that, quote, while the court fell short of explicitly ordering an immediate and permanent ceasefire, states must now be pressured to fulfill their legal obligations to actually stop the genocide and impose a ceasefire. Third, states must end their complicity and prevent genocide by, at the very least, ceasing arms transfers to Israel as well as all military funding and diplomatic cover for its genocidal aggression. Palestinian lawyer Diana Butu said that, quote, the ICJ ruling is an end to Israeli impunity. The ruling requires Israel to take measures to prevent genocide, to ensure effective aid enters Gaza, to ensure that its military does not commit genocide and prevent and punish those who incite to genocide. There has been criticism of the ICJ's failure to explicitly call for a ceasefire, but as Ali tweeted, quote, Israel cannot stop killing and other genocidal acts against Palestinians as the court ordered without a ceasefire. Here is South African Foreign Minister Naledi Pandor explaining that point. I believe that uh, in exercising uh, the uh, order, there would have to be a ceasefire. Without it, the order uh, doesn't actually work. I, I, I would have wanted a ceasefire. They didn't specifically call no, they didn't. Are you disappointed but how they didn't specify that? In I'm, I have no way that I'm going to say I'm disappointed. I hoped for it, but the fact of delivering humanitarian aid the fact of taking measures that reduce the levels of harm against persons who have no role in what Israel uh, is combating, for me, requires a ceasefire. And I believe Israel would have to attend to how it conducts its search for the hostages and for those Hamas individuals who carried out the October 7 uh, attack. That was South African Foreign Minister Naledi Pandor. Meanwhile, Israel's genocidal officials are dismissing the ICJ's order. The Times of Israel reported that National Security Minister Itamar Ben-Gavir called the court, quote, anti-Semitic. He said, quote, the decision of the anti-Semitic court in The Hague proves what is already known. This court does not seek justice, but rather the persecution of Jewish people. They were silent during the Holocaust, and today they continue the hypocrisy and take it another step further. Ben Gavir claimed the ICJ was founded in 1945. It was not in operation during the Nazi Holocaust, but it is for this one. We're now joined by Susan Akram. Susan is the director of the International Human Rights Clinic at Boston University's School of Law. She's taught at the American University in Cairo and at Al-Quds and Birzeit Universities in Palestine, and is the author of many publications and scholarly articles about international law and Palestine. Susan, it's so great to have you with us, and thank you for joining us on such short notice. Thank you for having me. Uh, Hi, Susan. 
Hi, Ali. So first off, your overall reaction to the International Court of Justice's ruling this morning. So my first response is cautious optimism. Uh, the ruling did not go as far as, of course, many of us who were looking for a clear decision to halt uh, the attacks on Gaza completely. Uh, were, uh, yes, we were hoping for, for that. Uh, on the other hand, this decision is somewhere between the provisional measures that the court issued in the Myanmar case and in the Ukraine versus Russia cases. So it seems to thread a, a middle ground and perhaps I think some of us could assume that the court was hoping for compliance and that there was possibly no, no expectation of compliance if there was a, a demand for a complete ceasefire. Um, at the same time, the, there is a very high uh, unanimity on the court on each of the provisional measures. And the uh, measures track very closely the requirements of the Genocide Convention and basically say that Israel must stop uh, engaging in any of the acts that it lists from the Genocide Convention, the presumption being that Israel is violating those provisions of the Convention. Uh, Susan, is this a defeat for Israel? Uh, will Israel now have to contend with um, being uh, associated with committing acts of genocide? Uh, what's your response to that? Yes, uh, well, absolutely on the second point, Israel will be associated with acts of genocide forever. Um, is it a defeat is a second question and depends very much on what action states take to implement this decision. Uh, one can enter, so the next step from this decision is that the court refers these provisional measures to the Security Council. We can expect a veto from the United States there, uh, but it will likely again be taken up by the General Assembly and there we know from the prior votes that the vast majority of the countries on this planet, as well as representing the vast majority of the people on this planet, uh, that there will be a decision about how these provisional measures are to be carried out. And that's where the action is going to be. And where the responsibility for all civil society actors is going to play a major role in how their states respond to this and what they do to hold Israel to account based on what the court has indicated Israel must do. You're an a international law expert and educator with a great deal of experience and deep knowledge and so you've taken a very uh careful look as as one would expect and want you to to do um uh, a lot of us who don't have that expertise and who, who are very hot-headed are reacting to this decision in all sorts of ways and and immediately a battle broke out on social media about what it means uh, uh with 
some people say, oh, this is a, a worthless decision. It's a, it's a defeat for the Palestinian or South African side. It's a win for Israel because uh, uh, particularly people, a lot of people hung up on this issue of the ceasefire. Uh, and and you, you've said that you would have wanted that. And the South African foreign minister said she would have wanted that. And I, of course, would have wanted that. But I want to put to you sort of a, a different view on that as a layperson and get your view as a, a lawyer. And I just want to, for our audience, just read a little bit of what the actual order is or the provisional measures, to use the court's term. And this was uh, adopted by 15 votes to two, so a very significant majority. Um, it says the State of Israel shall, in accordance with its obligations under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide in relation to Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of this Convention, in particular, killing members of the group, causing bodily harm or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, and imposing measures intended to prevent births within the groups. And then there are other parts of the order that go to um, making sure humanitarian uh, aid and so on gets in, and incitement, preventing and punishing incitement. But I just want to reiterate this, this view that the court maybe took uh, a view that this is tantamount to calling for a ceasefire, because how can you, as the South African foreign minister said, how can you um, prevent killing and mental and physical, uh, mental and bodily harm uh, without a ceasefire? It's, it's effectively impossible. And how can you um, stop creating conditions that are calculated to make life impossible without a ceasefire and without ending the siege of Gaza. In a sense, this is broader than a, than a ceasefire because uh, Israel could have a ceasefire. We've had ceasefires before, but within a ceasefire, you can still have the siege, you can still have starvation, you can still have denial of, of medical care and access for humanitarian aid, but the, the, the measures here are far broader because they not only say stop the violence against Palestinians, they say also stop starving them. Effectively, it could be interpreted as stop besieging them, stop doing all these other things. And if they go to the Security Council, it would, you know, the US will probably veto it anyway. Let's not kid ourselves. But if there was the word ceasefire in there, the, wouldn't the United States say, well, uh, we're going to veto this because calling for a ceasefire is negating Israel's so-called right to self-defense. Whereas it's much harder to oppose something like this, which says, stop doing genocide. Uh, they'll probably still veto it anyway. But I just wanted to put that view to you and get your reaction. Mm -hmm. Yes, so several responses to that. Number one, uh, I started out by saying that the court is probably highly motivated by trying to get compliance. And you're exactly right. 
this, I, I would guess, uh, a, a very uneducated guess, not having, not being behind the scenes in the court's deliberations, but that uh, they were much more likely to get a positive response at the Security Council if they did not call for a ceasefire. So I totally agree with that piece. On the other hand, if you look at these provisional measures and you connect the elements of genocide, so you see provisional measure one and provisional measure two, the second provisional measure says the state of Israel shall ensure with immediate effect that its military does not commit any of the acts. It's not saying these acts must stop or that the, uh, it's in other words, allowing the military to continue its operations, right? As long as it doesn't violate these provisions. Now you but have to it, think- of Isn't that like saying the Israeli military can make an omelette, but it can't break any eggs. In some ways, but you have to remember again that the elements of these particular elements of genocide must be connected with the statements of intent. Right. So if there's no intent, but these acts are being carried out in the context of a legitimate conflict, and the court has said nothing about that, about the legitimacy or not of the conflict. If these acts are being carried out within, and they are proportionate to the what is allowed under humanitarian law um, as part of a conflict, it's not genocide. So the court here is threading the needle very, very carefully and I would not go so far as to say, just looking at the first provisional measure on its own, that it is the equivalent of demanding a ceasefire. Connect the first one to the second and connect that to the requirement of intent under the Genocide Convention. That's why I'm suggesting I'm cautiously optimistic about this ruling. I would not go so far as to be fully enthusiastic in the conclusion that by saying what it does in provisional measure one, that the court is saying the equivalent of a ceasefire. I think there is an argument that under two and, uh, and the intent piece that Israel still has an argument to say, we can continue to conduct our operations, but they must be much more narrow and they must be targeted and they must not uh, to the extent possible, not kill civilians. So that's my take. I, I'm, and again, I'm just digesting this and uh, need to really go back to the other two rulings in the Myanmar and Ukraine versus Russia cases to unpack those. Um, and in terms of what, uh, what the consequences of that, those two orders have been on the other important bodies at the UN. Mm -hmm. Susan, um, what about enforcement? I know that Israel uh, was also ordered to, you know, uh, report back to the court in one month. Um, what is, uh, who, you know, this is a binding order, but who and what can enforce the, the ruling of the court? So we already talked about what happens next in terms of the uh, mechanical 
consequences. It goes to the Security Council. The Security Council is going to have to decide. I'm suggest I'm guessing that if the Security Council does not um, implement the uh, clearly implementable parts of this of this order, that it's going to again go to the General Assembly under something called there's a 1950 resolution called Uniting for Peace, which allows the General Assembly to take action uh, and put a resolution on the table when the Security Council fails to act, when there are breaches to peace. So that's actually how the General Assembly has been uh, getting these resolutions on the table when the Security Council has failed. So I'm, I uh, expect that that mechanism will be used again for a continuing resolution and that we will probably get another call for a ceasefire and perhaps much more specific actions out of the General Assembly. And then it is going to be uh, up to, under the rubric of what is called erga omnis partis, that is all state parties to the genocide convention are going to have obligations. And one would hope that the General Assembly in its resolution would spell out what those obligations are on all state parties as a matter of not just a resolution of the General Assembly, but as a matter of being state parties to the Genocide Convention. And as I mentioned before, this is where the action is going to be and where our work as civil society is going to be incredibly important, demanding accountability through our uh, domestic governments, through, through our government's domestic acts. Um, so that's the implementation. Now, of course, in the Ukraine versus Russia case, as a consequence of the provisional measures from the ICJ, the International Criminal Court, the prosecutor, issued a warrant for Putin's arrest. Now, we would hope if that doesn't happen from the prosecutor, that individual states that have already shown their willingness to implement whatever orders the ICJ uh, decides, that they will take this up through domestic legislation and their own criminal universal jurisdiction processes and issue warrants for the arrest of the principals prosecuting this war. Susan, uh, we what what impact specifically do you think this could have on, say, the arms trade with Israel? I mean, we know that there have been round-the-clock airlifts from the United States to Israel, and that's where the bombs come from to carry out this genocide. But it's not just the United States. It's the Netherlands, it's Germany, it's the United Kingdom, and many other countries. Uh, legal expert Nimr Sultani tweeted... Uh, the EU, the UK, German and US officials who met and indulged Isaac Herzog, Israel's president, and rushed to photos with Yoav Gallant, the defense minister, now need to confront the fact that their statements are exhibit A in the genocide case. Uh, do you think that they will carry on business as usual and continue to coddle and uh, receive and uh, praise people like Isaac Herzog? Or do you think this begins to change the way Israel is seen and treated, even among its uh, so-called friends. Or, or are they just going to keep ignoring it? I mean, they just had, uh, or they are having uh, 
this week, Holocaust, International Holocaust Remembrance Day uh, events, and, and once again saying never again and lighting candles while participating in a full-scale genocide. I mean, are they just beyond any, any hope? Is it up to um, the global south to take this on? Or is there any, does any of this matter in the so-called West? Uh, it matters a great deal. It matters a great deal. Um, and I think there's going to be a great deal more caution in dealing with uh, the uh, Israeli principles from, first of all, in the Western world, from the EU. And I think that is because there's dissent within the EU about the approach to uh, what is happening in Gaza. We've heard from Spain, we've heard from Slovenia, uh, and I think that dissent is going to grow. I mean, the Irish have been very loud uh, about their opposition. Um, I think with this ICJ uh, opinion, decision, that uh, it's going to give a, a, a larger platform to the dissenting voices within the EU. Um, there is not going to be a uniform policy anymore from the EU, is my prediction towards Israel, uh, the fanfare towards Israel, there is going to be a great deal more caution. Now, the US, I think, is beyond hope. Um, I'm sorry, until we get a lot more congressional voices supporting Bernie Sanders and Ayanna Presley and the uh, congr co Congress people who are calling, who have been calling for a ceasefire. Um, but I don't, that is not where the action is going to be at this point to hold Israel accountable. On the other hand, what is, what we have to watch very closely is this case in California by the Center for Constitutional Rights. I would have expected that case to be dismissed from the get-go. The fact that it wasn't, and, I, and we're going to have uh, arguments today in that case, um, Can you just a, remind, we, we had someone from the CCR, the Center for Constitutional Rights, back literally months ago now uh, to talk about that case. Uh, and that is a case, uh, it's a civil suit, if I'm correct, in federal court against uh, Joe Biden and other top officials uh, saying that they are failing on, uh, in their uh they're failing in their obligations under the Genocide Convention to stop genocide. And the Genocide Convention is incorporated into United States law. It's part of U.S. law because the U.S. ratified the Genocide Convention and President Ronald Reagan signed it, I believe, in 1988. And... Uh, there was a big push from supporters of Israel to get the United States to sign, to ratify uh, that convention. It's hard to imagine any president today signing the Genocide Convention. I think that's that we've regressed even from Ronald Reagan. But so is that a fair summary of the lawsuit in California? And that is that the uh, lawsuit actually goes farther. It, it is charging complicity which brings us back to your point about arms, because this is specifically about weapons delivery to Israel. And that's the main complicity between uh, weapons delivery and, of course, billions of dollars that the U.S. has given to Israel to prosecute whatever wars it wants. 
Um, so the complicity is really interesting because that's actually a, normally a very difficult um, element to prove, a dif difficult charge to prove. And uh, in the past, um, civil suits under the same statute, which is the Alien Tort Claims Act, against Israeli defendants for a whole host of um, gross violations of human rights have failed at the jurisdiction stage. Uh, and they have been dismissed before even getting to the merits. So to my mind, we have a receptive court. Um, we shall see how far this goes, but the efforts by the Biden administration to dismiss this lawsuit so far have not been successful. Uh, but this type of action, now in the US, we don't have pure criminal uh, universal jurisdiction um, it's all through the civil, it's all through the Alien Tort Claims Act, except for the Convention Against Torture. Um, but other countries like Belgium, like the Netherlands, uh, France, the UK, have the possibility of bringing of victims and victims' representatives, bringing cases to, through their criminal pr procedures to get warrants issued and start criminal prosecutions. We so, don't have so, that here, but that's the equivalent in other countries. And that's where uh, we hope civil society will begin those processes. And, and, they have just, and, and that's very helpful. But just to clarify for our viewers who may not know all these terms, and I, I don't claim to know all of them. So there's international justice, things like the International Court of Justice, which we just watched today. That's the case we're focusing on. And that's a court that deals between states. It doesn't deal with individual uh, accused individuals. Then you have the International Criminal Court, which I do want to come back to uh, in a minute, which takes on criminal cases against individuals accused of various uh, high crimes in international law, whether it's uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide. And then you have universal jurisdiction, which you mentioned, which is where international crimes can be tried in the courts of a third country. And so let me give an example of that. Uh, back in, uh, I think it's more than 20 years ago now, a group of survivors uh, sought to criminally prosecute Ariel Sharon, who was then the Prime Minister of Israel, in a Belgian court for the uh, Sabran Shatila massacre of Palestinian refugees uh, in Beirut uh, in 1982. And in that case, the United States actually pressured Belgium to change its laws, and, and they got... Um, Ariel Sharon off the hook, I think the Belgian court eventually said, oh, we don't have jurisdiction. I don't remember what the excuse was. But so there's that precedent where people have tried universal jurisdiction and the door has been slammed. Are you? Do you see now that th this is a more... Why would things be different now? Let me put it that way. Yes, so, so although Belgian... So there are several bases for... Uh, jurisdiction over international crimes. And uh, pure universal jurisdiction is relates to, for example, 
um, under the Genocide Convention, every party to that convention is required to prevent and prosecute uh, genocide. Under that convention, if you had pure universal jurisdiction, a state would be able to prosecute anyone, anywhere, regardless of where that crime took place and regardless of that state's connection with that crime. Now, what has happened over the years, primarily because of efforts to hold US and Israeli uh, perpetrators uh, accountable in domestic courts, is that that pure universal jurisdiction has been narrowed in various domestic uh, statutes, meaning uh, principally that there needs to be some connection between the state that's prosecuting and the individual who is being prosecuted or the state that's prosecuting and the actual crime. Now, countries vary dramatically in where they are on that, on that spectrum of connection between that state and the territory. So, but under the Genocide Convention, and now what we're hearing from the International Court of Justice, this is an erga omnis obligation, meaning all states must prevent and punish. And because we've had the Myanmar uh, uh, and Gambia case, where the International Court of Justice has said, it doesn't matter what connection the state has, to the crime, every every state is required, and has jurisdiction at the uh, at the International Court of Justice for preventing and punishing genocide. So, yes, you're right. We have that Sharon precedent, but there are lots of other cases now going on against Syrian defendants, against uh, Myanmar, uh, against uh, Russia in domestic courts, under universal jurisdiction, under various aspects of their statutory provisions. So, so, what, so what I'm saying is there's lots of opportunity now. And right now we know that in the UK, the um, International Center for Justice for Palestinians has filed a number of complaints with Scotland Yard to uh, prosecute Israeli defendants for genocide in Gaza. So just to, to try to, to uh, spell this out a bit, uh, for my understanding and for our viewers, so is what you're saying is that based on this ruling, this gives a green light to any country in the world to charge Yoav Gallant, Benjamin Netanyahu, whoever it may be, with uh, acts of genocide under the convention and issue an international arrest warrant that these people should be arrested and brought to whatever country it is to stand trial. And that, that this is what the International Court of Justice has green-lighted today. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, that's what I'm saying. And But, but again, it's state parties to the genocide convention. That's what this ruling is about. So, yes, that's exactly right. And, and so if, if someone, sorry, go ahead, Nora. No, I just wanted to ask, you know, also as a layperson, um, it, would the U.S. or, you know, any EU country or Canada uh, or the U.K. be able to step in and, and try and uh, thwart that from happening? 
Um, they could, but it's difficult. They need to have some significant leverage. Now, whether the U.S.'s leverage at this point is going to be sufficient against an awful lot of countries that have joined this request is remains an open question. We shall see. And let's go back to the International Criminal Court. That's a different institution from the International Court of Justice. People often confuse them. And again, the International Court of Justice, which is often called the World Court, goes back actually more than a century, its origins. And it's the top court to decide disputes between states. And I think they also deal with like, and the Genocide Convention. And I think, do they also deal with the law of the sea? They any conventions, any conventions right. that have a provision that that uh, referred refer disputes, the, jur the jurisdiction of disputes to the International Court of Justice. Right. This is the court attached to the United Nations. So all UN charter members are subject to the jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice and any rulings that apply to all of states' parties are binding on all UN charter members. Right. So that's the International Court of Justice. It deals with disputes between states under various conventions of international law. And then, as we said, there's the International Criminal Court, which was only established in, uh, or I think it was 2000, under the Rome Statute. And not all countries are members. Most countries are members, but there's some notable exceptions. The United States, Israel, uh, Russia, uh, I don't remember them all, but it's a handful of countries. And that is a court of so-called last resort, which can issue arrest warrants against individuals. So as you noted, they have call, uh, issued an arrest warrant for the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin. And, and that, I believe, is the first time they issued an arrest warrant for, for anyone who wasn't from Africa because that's also been a major criticism of the International Criminal Court, is it's, it's in effect acted as an international colonial court, a court for the West to go after, uh, you know, the leaders of countries they don't like, but it's never gone after, you know, a George Bush for his war of aggression against Iraq or uh, his war in Afghanistan or Tony Blair and so on. Karim Khan is the a chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, and he has been very strongly criticized for dragging his feet on Palestine, where there are crimes, there's so many crimes he could prosecute, including the settlements in the West Bank in East, in, 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 uh, East Jerusalem. But he hasn't done so, and people have noted the uh, incredible uh, contrast with the way he immediately got on the uh, case of Russia uh, and issued an arrest warrant within months or weeks of the war uh, beginning in February 2022 and has yet done nothing in related relation to Palestine. So two questions with that background. One, why do you think that is, that he's done nothing up to now? And two, how do you think the International Court of Justice ruling changes that. There's no formal process 
where the ICJ influences the International Criminal Court. But explain how the, those things can be connected. So on the first question about uh, Karim Khan, there's, there's a backstory that relates to uh, backlash against the prior prosecutor, Fatou Bensouda. When Bensouda indicated, so first of all, there was, uh, I think it took five years after Palestine became a party to the Rome Statute in 2014. Uh, it took about five years for the court internally to decide that it had jurisdiction over Palestine as a state. So that was a huge delay, even though Palestine had been submitting uh, communications, uh, you know, from the beginning of its ratification. Um, and at that point, this was Fatih bin Suda who decided, yes, Palestine was a state for purposes of jurisdiction of the ICC, and that there were pending requests for investigations, not only on Palestine, on Gaza, on the Mavi Marmara, on settlements, but also pending investigations against the US for war crimes in Afghanistan. And uh, the US put enormous pressure on Bin Suda, including issuing sanctions against her and her team, denying them visas for coming to present their reports to the United Nations in New York. There was enormous pushback and basically Bensuda put a halt on those investigations. Now that carried over to Karim Khan and Khan from the beginning of his tenure made it rather apparent that he wanted only to move cases forward that he had a really good chance at winning. And therefore, taking into account the pushback against the prior team, he, was, he has exhibited extreme caution in these potential uh, Israeli and US cases. Now, having said that, he has opened investigation on Palestinian cases. I'm not privy to that conversation. Uh, you would need to ask the Al-Haq team uh, about that, that's worth a separate conversation about what's happening with that. But he has definitely now indicated that he's going to give the green light. This decision from the ICJ is going to give strength to him and give him a much stronger platform. Uh, and especially if other state states parties to the Genocide Convention move, this is going to give him more strength to move on the cases he's already indicated and perhaps a genocide case uh, on Gaza. But I even hope that if he, the question. Yeah. yeah, no, that was a wonderful answer. I I hope you're right. I, I'm I'm going to say I'm very skeptical because I think that if any situation in the world would have demanded indictments, I mean, just the settlements alone, there's so much evidence there uh, that, that there's no excuse for not uh, issuing indictments. And so I can't help but uh, 
conclude that this is political and uh, you know that that it's just like everything else susan i mean in palestine becomes the litmus test in any institution you have all these various groups that uh, are concerned about human rights all over the world but then they're silent about palestine you have university presidents that uh, brag about how much they protect free speech but not when it comes to palestine i mean to me i see it as all part of that that continuum so do you feel that i mean this is, you you've written so many books and articles about international law the question of palestine within international law refugee rights and so i i don't want to say that of course the law is extremely important and but there is a view that like oh this is all a waste of time because palestinians have been going to all these international forums for 75 years if not longer and there's always they always find a way to slam the door is so you said you're cautiously optimistic you've talked about the caution give us some of the optimism because i i think we need i think we need it but we want it to be grounded in something that we can really take away i'm sorry to put you on the spot like this but uh... <laughs> it's not on the spot at all but i say what i say to my i'll say what i say to my students all the time the law is a tool it is a tool but it's a very important and uh consequential tool but it's a tool that civil society has to know how to use strategically and i think for many many years the palestinians were very weak on using the law that was strongly in their favor using it strategically it has taken a very long time which is why i often talk about the comparison between the south africa namibia cases in the effort to end apartheid they had five advisory opinions and a contentious case from the international court of justice over the years that provided enormous ammunition to civil society to say this is what international law is and therefore our state governments must comply that's how the whole sanctions regime began and we had until the 2004 advisory opinion nothing from the international institutions on behalf of palestine it took that long for the palestinians to start working in the un mechanisms meanwhile all of those years israel was shoring up its legal arguments presenting its claims again and again in all of the un mechanisms and all that had to be dismantled in order to have the palestinian law and narrative at the highest UN institutions and that's what's happening now that's my optimism because now we have to as civil society learn how to use this these rulings that are coming out in favor of the Palestinians and i mean catch up with lost time for what needed to have happened after the 2004 advisory opinion we by the way have another advisory opinion coming up arguments coming up soon at the international court of justice squarely on settlements and the broader 
uh, regime of, um, of discrimination against Palestinians and the possibility of apartheid. That's coming next. It's moving quickly, but we need to understand how to use these legal decisions in a way that tra transforms them into implementation. That's why I keep saying it's coming back to civil society. Now it's our job. And, and talk more about that. So what, what would you say for people who are watching from the UK or from Sweden or from Tunis or from uh, Yemen? We have viewers in Yemen too. Uh, uh, or for, from any country, South Africa, India, what should be, what, what, are, what, what are people demanding now? Is it telling that in addition to, you know, you say the law is a tool, and I think sometimes people can mistakenly think that if we take the law seriously, we think that's the only thing you should take seriously. We, we, you know, of course, it's a tool that goes along with all the other forms of struggle that people have. But focusing on that, what is what should people be? And by civil society, you mean everyone, trade unions, uh, individuals, organizations, party activists organize you know anyone so what what specifically should they be asking for in their countries so there is a i mean there's a huge range of actions but i'll give you a couple of examples it's not an accident that we now have something like 60 congress people joining on the call for a ceasefire that would have been unthinkable um even five years ago um, and how has that happened? So groups like the Defense for Children International has had this campaign on no way to treat a child and the bills that have been sponsored by Betty McCollum. She has herself said she has been educated through this campaign about what is happening in Palestine. And so that, has, that campaign has been a combination of activists and legal groups working together with Palestinians to develop the information, to help draft the legislation, to meet with uh, Betty McCollum and her staff, and many, many other Congress people. Um, and that's just one type of action. So thinking about what is strategic depends very much on the context of each country and how well developed the civil society activists are. But for example, here in the Americas, uh, we are talking about what can be done at the Inter-American Human Rights Commission. What kinds of actions can we take as a community in anticipation of this decision from the ICJ and now running with the ICJ decision? What can we do here to, uh, with our Latin American colleagues to, to ask for decisions from the inter-American human rights system about what the obligations are for all states, parties of the genocide convention in the Americas. That's yet another strategy. So there are many, many ways uh, that civil society first needs to understand what the utility is of this decision and then how best to adapt their strategies in their context, in their domestic context. 
Susan, I know we have some questions uh, from our viewers and listeners, but I just wanted to ask you what, uh, you know, and this is obviously speculative, but um, what do you think uh, Israel and, you know, Israeli officials are saying to each other behind closed doors right now? Um, you know, I, I mentioned at the beginning, Itamar Ben-Gavir dismissing uh, the ICJ ruling, of course, smearing it as anti-Semitic. Um, uh, I think uh, Netanyahu said Hague Schmeg, something like that. Um, what, uh, but what do you think is happening or could be happening uh, in terms of the Israeli reaction in, in its policies? Well, I'll tell you what Ehud Barak is telling them not to do from the from his two dissents here on the provisional measures. Aharon Barak. Aharon, Aharon. Yeah, sorry. And, and just to, just so viewers know, Aharon Barak is a former chief justice of the Israeli Supreme Court, and in the International Court of Justice, countries that or in a case, have the right to appoint one ad hoc judge. And, and that's who Israel appointed on their side. And South Africa also appointed a judge. So normally the ICJ has 15 judges, but if each country in a dispute uh, appoints a judge, there are 17 judges. So there were 17 judges on this panel. And one of them was the Israeli appointed judge, Aharon Barak. Uh, so his agreement... Uh, with the majority, interestingly, was uh, on the the uh, measure saying that Israel should stop, prevent, and punish public incitement. So he's basically telling the Israeli government, stop talking about genocide. Uh, and I found that really interesting, given Aharon Barak's record on the Israeli Supreme Court. We, that's a whole separate conversation. It's but not good though, right? It's not good. No, yeah. it's not good. And he was, he would have, I think he was the obvious choice for Israel to uh, nominate as the ad hoc judge. But anyway, that's what I suspect is going to happen. They're going to tone down their language, at least the language that is clearly um, you know, dehumanizing Palestinians and uh, calling them animals and some of the awful rhetoric that we oh, have they heard. can't help themselves. I, I'll be surprised if they do. <laughs> they can't help themselves. <laughs> well, we'll see, but that's my prediction. Uh, I think that they are going to be discussing which countries their principles are going to be able to travel to uh, and anticipate that there may well be uh, some visa denials, some entry denials. Um, and I think they should be, they would be correct in, in um, having those discussions and being cautious about which countries are going to welcome them. What about the, can you see them continuing to carpet bomb Gaza in, at the same level that they've been doing? Um, I mean, there's, there's no indication that Israel has any intention of uh, stopping uh, on their own. Um, what I think there's going to be some pullback. I think there's going to be some troop pullback, and I think they were contemplating that already mm. after the 
high loss of soldiers that was they've been so doing it already yes yeah. I, I think that is that is definitely going to be happening i think there's going to be some more opening of humanitarian assistance i think that's absolutely going to happen and there's going to be a ton of pressure uh including from the united states for that um beyond that i'm not i'm not sure yeah we well, have had yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead, Ali. I mean, yeah, go ahead, have, Ali. We don't have John Elmer on today to talk about, or do we? I don't think we do, right? <laughs> he's uh, uh, he's waiting in the wings, but yeah. Oh, he is. But, okay, sorry. But I, I mean, no, but but, uh, but I don't think we have but, any videos today. Uh, we don't have we don't have the usual, and and Susan, I don't know if you've seen some of John's um, analysis of the resistance, but in other words, well, what I want to say is that. Israel's entire military strategy. Hi, John. Hi, guys. Uh, uh, Israel's entire military strategy is bombing civilians and starving people. So if they stop doing that, then 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 that's it. What, what else will they do? Mm -hmm. I mean, John, John, what do you think? Yeah, no, I think we're seeing signs uh, of a drawdown for sure. And I think that uh, there, there isn't much more to Israel's uh, campaign than these genocidal acts. So if they've got, if they have to stop the genocidal acts, then there's, then, you know, they can do some telegenic little raids once in a while, but they don't have a war without the genocide. I mean, the whole of the mm -hmm. so-called Dahia doctrine is attacking civilians. And as as regular viewers know from the analyses that, that uh, John does and that we, we talk about, you never see Hamas fighters, or almost never. I think we saw uh, maybe the first time we saw a Hamas fighter recently, but you never see Hamas fighters in the videos released by Israel. You only see Hamas fighters in the videos released by Hamas because the Hamas, well, not just Hamas, Al-Qassam brigades, the military wing of Hamas, and Sarai Al-Quds, the uh, military wing of Islamic Jihad, and the other resistance factions are taking the military initiative to attack enemy soldiers, whereas the only thing Israel is doing is attacking civilians and civilian infrastructure. So without a genocide, they don't have a war. Right. Is that is that fair, John? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I believe that's I believe that to be true. Yeah, the the military objectives are are very very thin, and um, the record uh, of Israel's military objectives is very very thin. And the the record, as we saw in this case, of their genocidal acts are enormous and overwhelming. Yeah, uh, Asa, you had some questions for Susan from our audience. Yeah, we've got a, a couple of decent questions from viewers, but I, I wanted to ask you, first of all, um, in terms of what to expect next, um, the courts uh, ordered that Israel has to um, report back to the court within one month's time to that, you know, uh, 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 reporting on the steps it's taken to comply with these uh, rulings. What will that report look like? Is it going to be additional hearings? Is it is it going to be privately to the court? What what sort of format will that take? So it will be a, a written submission, and then the court will decide whether it wants to have a hearing 
uh, a subsequent hearing or not. But there's going to be a change on the court. I think it's February 9th that four or five of the judges cycle out. Their term is over. So that was one of the... Including the American judge, right? The, the chief president. justice. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons, I think, that there was, even from the start, an expectation that the provisional measures were going to be issued very quickly because they did not want this to be left to a new slate of judges. So uh, the merits is going to take uh, years, is the expectation, given how slowly the ICJ uh, operates. But a lot of this is going to depend on who the new slate of judges are and their view. At the same time, they can't move very far backwards from number one, the analysis in the 2004 Wall opinion on some of the critical underlying conclusions, legal conclusions, and number two, from the scope of the provisional measures. Um, so, so that's you know sort of what's going to unfold. Aside from the fact that now the provisional measures themselves go to the Security Council, so the action is going to be in New York next. Um, and we will see what the interaction is going to be like between the Security Council and General Assembly in this next round of resolutions. Well, that was, uh, you've brought us on to the question from our viewer here, who's, who's asking it, if and when the US vetoes it at the Security Council, could it then be taken to the General Assembly? Yes, that's what will happen. And what has happened in the last votes on the uh, efforts to get a ceasefire. There's something called a continuing resolution under the resolution that I mentioned, the 1950 Uniting for Peace resolution, which allows the General Assembly to take, to take a matter uh, up immediately if the Security Council fails to act on an issue of, um, of risk uh, or threats to peace and security. So that's what's been happening on these last few votes. That's the mechanism that has allowed the General Assembly to keep taking it up. The second question from our viewers here is, could Israel potentially use the fact that this is a provisional, a, um, a sort of interim uh, ruling, as it were, um, as a delaying tactic, as a way of saying there hasn't been actually a ruling on this yet, and that hasn't been settled? Um, by the court, could there be some sort of uh, filibustering there? Well, the court has said that Israel must prevent the commission of genocidal acts. Right, yeah. The assumption is it's committing genocidal acts. Yeah. So I think that question's been answered. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really important that people focus on that, really. Yeah. Thank Susan, you. Uh, what effect will this ICJ ruling have on the Palestinian resistance and other resistance, uh, you know, from Lebanon to Yemen? Um, what what are the implications there? Uh, I'm not an expert on on the inner thinking of the resistance, but I suspect that it's going to provide. I don't want to use the word ammunition but it will likely provide ammunition uh, to their, you know, their position that, that there is legitimate resistance and that they are the ones that are trying to prevent 
genocide. Um, so we shall see. I'm not a spokesperson for any of the resistance movement. I just want <laughs> you know, speculation. Well, it's it's very. I mean, that is an excellent question, and um, you know, we do follow very closely the statements of the various resistance groups, and of course, the position of Hamas, as expressed by Osama Hamdan, who is the very senior spokesperson in. Uh, in Beirut, and he gives regular press conferences, that ha Hamas always does appeal to international law. Obviously, this is not an organization that thinks that international law is the only means of struggle because they're engaged in an armed struggle, but they, they often do place their demands and their expectations within the framework of international law. And I believe they've said repeatedly that, you know, if the ICC... Uh, charges us with crimes, we're fine with that because we can defend ourselves. And they've often invited international investigations and so on uh, in the context of, you know, ridiculous Israeli, um, uh, you know, accusations, uh, the, the fantasy bunker under Al-Shifa Hospital. And, and they said, come and take a look, we'll cooperate. So they do consider international law a tool, and I expect that uh, Osama Hamdan will give a press conference tomorrow and 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 uh, welcome the decision. Uh, also today, actually, in his most recent press conference, which was today or yesterday, uh, he said that in advance of the ruling, he said that if it calls for a ceasefire, Hamas will abide by it as long as the other side does too. So he announced that we're willing to abide by the court's ruling. So, I mean, I'm just conveying what, they, what they've said. But the point is, Hamas doesn't say, oh, international law is nothing and we don't care about it. They use that discourse. But there is one question I, I, I've also seen a lot of people discussing. discussing. The, the court, in its ruling, called on... Uh, Palestinian groups in Gaza to release all hostages, that's their term, we use the term captives, um, to release all hostages immediately and unconditionally. But if I'm correct, Susan, this is something I'd like you to clarify, that's not part of the prov provisional measures. That was just sort of an expression of their opinion. Is that correct? Yes, it's not in the provisional measures. Um and I just have been looking them over again to be sure it's not in the provisional measures. So, yes. It was more, more like an aspiration. It wasn't a binding. Uh, uh, and in fact, we had your colleague, your highly esteemed colleague, Michael Link, on a few weeks ago. And he he was doing sort of predictions, uh, or, or what not predictions, but sort of possibilities. And he said that, the court might try to choose a middle ground of imposing provisional measures on Israel and also on the Palestinian resistance. And it did not do that. It only imposed provisional measures on Israel. And it didn't say anything in the provisional measures about what the Palestinian groups should or shouldn't do. Uh, of course, Hamas is not a state and is not before the court. So the court is talking about the parties that are before the court. 
and can't really go beyond that. It can draw conclusions and say what they should do, but it can't make any orders to a state or non-state party that's not before it. And mm. a non-state party can't be before the mm. court. Mm. So I would, have, I would not have made the same prediction as Michael, though I usually well, I, I, <laughs> No, but I, I also want to go back and make sure that I didn't misrepresent what he said. So. You know, and if I did, I apologize. That's my mistake. But that's kind of what I, I took away from it. Uh, we just have a, a couple more minutes. Um, but Susan, I wanted to just ask you to, you know, kind of contextualize this all. Um, the significance of the ICJ ruling, uh, what could happen next, the ongoing uh, intergenerational trauma that Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank, which we haven't really talked about, uh, besides the the ICJ ruling in two thousand four that that ruled that Israel's wall in the West Bank is illegal. Um, this trauma that Palestinians have been suffering for a century. Um, what is the significance at this point of this ruling? And how do you think we are going to be moving forward after this? Despite my cautious optimism, I think this ruling is hugely consequential, hugely consequential. But how it is implemented, again, I can't reinforce enough that it's going to depend on civil society moving and pressuring their states and holding those states accountable for their um, joining South Africa in this action. Um, so the onus is on all of us to use whatever mechanisms we have to turn this decision into hard, concrete results. And that's going to take a huge range of ways, a lot of strategizing, a lot of good thinking. But the first thing that needs to happen is education on this decision and on the meaning of this decision and what flows from it. So we need a lot of teach-ins. Uh, I mean, that's also up to you all. Um, hopefully, you're going to take this forward. Um, but I think the momentum is gathering to end the impunity that Israel has enjoyed for, yes, a hundred years. Um, and, you know, I think negotiations are going to happen, but they're going to be more difficult than ever because of the enormous, enormous suffering of Gazans. I mean, this is yet another generation of trauma. And what is going to happen to those children who have not a single family member left alive? What is going to happen to them? Um, how is Gaza going to be rebuilt? I think one thing this decision is going to put a halt to is the discussion about moving Palestinians out of Gaza. I think that's going to stop as a result of this. Um, and but then what happens and who's going to rebuild Gaza and what does it mean to what's happening on a, a very rapid scale in the West Bank, more dispossession, more settler violence. Um, 
yes, there has to be a lot of different types of strategies in order to deal with all of the repercussions uh, of what's been happening, not just since October 7th, but the last 75 years. Yeah, yeah. Susan Akram, you are a director, you are the, the director of the International Human Rights Clinic at Boston University's School of Law, and you're also a professor uh, and uh, author of books and publications and journal articles. Um, thank you so much for joining us, uh, especially at this um, very important moment in history uh, and at such short notice. Again, thank you so much for all that you do and for joining us today on the Electronic Intifada. Thank you. It's my pleasure, and keep up your good work, all of you. Thank you so much, Susan. That was, I know that was extremely helpful for me, and uh, we, we really yeah. appreciate it, and we hope to have you back again as, as uh, this case and the CCR case, and also the other advisory opinion before the ICJ uh, comes back. And I, yeah. again, I'm just seeing, you know, people are very, um, th th there is so much, uh, disillusionment about all institutions these days that it's very hard for people to get excited about anything uh, because people want an end to the slaughter, an end to the killing. And I think it's important to remember no court decision was going to do that. That the, the court, there's nothing the court would have said, could have said that was going to stop Israel doing what it does right now or immediately. But these are legal processes that provide us with opportunities. Uh, and, and that's, I think, what I took away from this. And we have to also learn the history. I know that, uh, you know, the, 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 the Namibia cases that you mentioned at the ICJ were activated by, by people. People took those decisions and gave them life and used them to pressure their governments and the world for change. So... I think one of the issues we need to do collectively is learn about that history so that we can also figure out how we can use these decisions as one of the tools in this liberation struggle. Exactly. Exactly right. Yes, exactly right. And that's really my message. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Susan. Uh, and uh also, thank you to Tamara Nassar behind the scenes as usual, our producer and director extraordinaire, Ali, John, Asa, um, thank you again. And uh, we will be back next week with, uh, people are asking in the comments, where are the John videos? They're coming, don't worry. Um, and be sure to like and subscribe this, uh, this episode, as well as sign up for our email list on electronicintifada.net. You can get notified of our upcoming live streams like this. Uh, thank you all, um, and uh, free Palestine. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks, Bye. Susan. Thank you.